Well, this Liturgist podcast was recorded live at Austin, Texas at the Liturgist Gathering. You've heard us talk about the gatherings on the show quite a bit whenever we have new ones to announce. And now you'll know kind of what happens there. We start the Liturgist Gathering with a live podcast on Friday night and then proceed to get increasingly weird throughout the day Saturday. And it's about time for us to plan some more gatherings. So here's what I'd like you to do. If you're in Portland, Minneapolis, Los Angeles, Nashville, Sydney, Australia, or Melbourne, Australia, pay special attention because we'd like to bring the Liturgist Gathering to you, but we need a place to do so. So if you've got a venue that can seat between 500 and, say, 1,100 people, we'd love to talk to you about hosting the Liturgist Gathering. To get in touch with us, go to theliturgistgathering.com and scroll to the bottom of the page where you'll see a link that says host a gathering and just fill out that form and our management team will be in touch with you quickly. Again, the cities that we'd like to bring the gathering to next are Portland, Oregon, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, Los Angeles, California, Nashville, Tennessee, Sydney, Australia, and Melbourne, Australia. Head to theliturgistgathering.com to fill out the form. And in the meantime, just listen to what happens at the Liturgist Gathering. This one from Austin, Texas. The stars at night are big and bright. You don't understand, I've wanted to do that my whole life. That was just wish fulfillment for me. And I knew there was, like if we tried that in Seattle, they'd be like, what? Participatory communal things, I don't understand. I just realized there might be some of you who are here with a friend who've never heard the Liturgist podcast, and may I say, I'm sorry. Uh, so I think uh, we'll introduce ourselves. So for the, some of you, this is redundant, but hi, I'm Science Mike. My name's Hillary McBride. Yes, saving all of our lives. You're shrinking. <laughs> I'm going to get back on my stool after that. Oh, and Hillary, back could you, you open up and receive that? Could you I feel that? I can't open up and receive it. I'm William Matthews. Yeah, baby. <laughs> and... Uh, William Matthews has a new record coming out called Cosmos. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Michael Gunger, Vishnu Das. So there's this amazing uh, story in Exodus about a man named Moses and a god named God. It's kind of a boy meets God. So a burning bush, 
kind of thing. They hit it off immediately. And God gives Moses this elevator pitch, like a sales pitch on becoming his spokesman, which is like a pretty good gig, really, you know? And so he's like, Moses, you you just really got to be my spokesman. You got to go free my people from the land of Egypt. And Moses is like, but I'm not a good leader or public speaker. And God's like, no, that's really kind of bullshit. I've got some specific reasons why. And so like, put some back and forth. By the way, props to Moses for negotiating with God Almighty. So Moses signs the deal. It's an exclusive contract. And he agrees. Like he's going to go and he he goes and he tells his father-in-law, we're going back to Egypt. And so he and his family start traveling to Egypt. And then this loving God says, as you go to Egypt, the most important thing to do is tell uh, Pharaoh that I'm going to kill his son because he doesn't listen to me after I hardened his heart. It's scripture. I'm not making this up. And and so I'm going to read Exodus 4, verses 24, and I will not change a single word of this passage. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my oldest son. I say to you, let my son go so he could worship me. But you refuse to let him go. As a result, now I'm going to kill your oldest son. Pharaoh hasn't refused yet. God's just assuming Pharaoh's going to refuse. So then... After getting this instruction, Moses leaves, and this happens. During their journey to Egypt, as they camped overnight, the Lord met Moses and tried to kill him. But Zephorah took a sharp-edged flint stone and cut off her son's foreskin. Then she touched Moses' genitals with it, and she said, You are my bridegroom because of the bloodshed. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she announced a bridegroom because of bloodshed by circumcision. The word of God for the people of God. I just want to cover a couple of notes here. Some theological takeaways from this passage. Moses says, I'll do it, God. Thank you. He makes the arrangements. He gets a message from God about what he should say. As soon as he starts the journey, the Lord met Moses. I'm assuming this time not as a burning bush, as a more human-like figure, I guess, and tried to kill him. So God tried to kill Moses. He didn't kill Moses. He had a desire to kill Moses and was not able to do so. Why was this assassination attempt from the Almighty against his recently appointed servant and spokesman, unsuccessful because a woman cut off a child's foreskin and then touched it to Moses' genitals. (laughs) And then said, you are my bridegroom because of the bloodshed. And God was like, we cool. (laughs) Welcome to the Liturgist Podcast, everybody. I've said on the podcast before, like, I'm not really that into the Bible these days, but suddenly my, I'm, my interest has peaked. 16 years in advertising. <laughs> so we've got a, a text thread with the four of us, and we, we were sending around some ideas for topics. 
for the podcast. And one of them that Hillary suggested was that we would all just share our favorite Bible stories. And we're like, that's weird. Let's do that. <laughs> um, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about our favorite Bible stories and why, and then see how weird it is. Here's mine. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so, and God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. All right, I'm not going to keep reading it because you get the point. You've probably heard it. It goes on for six Days and then God rests and God creates all of it, right? So here's what I like about this story. It's got, I've gotten in some serious trouble in my life for how I read this story. <laughs> but I didn't always read this story in a non-literal way. And that's actually why I wanted to pick this story. Because there's a strange sort of conveyor belt nature of this story for me that has always been able to have a place in my spirituality. As I've moved, it kind of just has moved along with me. So when I was a kid, a story like this, it's such a foundational, mythic, meaning-making story for not just my life, but really for Christendom, for Western civilization, really. The idea, this fun, fundamental myth, by myth, I don't mean just false story. I mean like meaning-making story. It's kind of a meta story that gives meaning to other stories, gives context and meaning to other stories within it. It sort of answers all the big questions that you have as a human being. Like, why are we here? Who, who are we? What is the ultimate meaning of life? And this story that I was taught from when I was born was, you're here because you're a creation of God. And sometimes we're so inculcated in this story. And by the way, there's other versions of this story, including scientific naturalism of Western civilization, which replaces the he, God, with it laws. It's not anymore for a lot of people like a God that created, but it's math that created. Whatever it is, it's a difference of source. We feel fundamentally different from whence we came. And that's not true for all myths in the world. Talking, thinking about the universe as a creation of any sort, whether that's from dead laws or a personal being, kind of stems from this Genesis fundamental meta-myth. So, as a kid, I actually really am glad that I didn't have a myth like, you know, it could have been anything. It could have been, why are we here? There was an alien warlord that spread his seed onto our planet so that so that he could raise his army and someday he will come back and harvest the best soldiers for his war. 
That could have been the myth. Like, that could have been like, that's what we're all preparing for the great warlord to come back to defeat alien civilizations. But that wasn't the myth. What if was, that is it? <laughs> could be. I'm just, I'm screwed. That's all. <laughs> yeah. You could work in the lab, maybe, or something. But what I was handed was that I am part of a good creation. And there's actually something quite lovely about that. In that is, I am part of all of this. In that story, I'm part of the the creation of the trees and the sky and the waters. And I'm, it is good. It is good. So I like that that was framed. But then as I became a teenager, I began to notice things about the story that didn't quite line up with other things that I learned in school or just kind of looking around like, how could there be day and night if there were no sun or moon or stars? And why, how, how does that, how are there trees before stars? And all the, like, the story doesn't make any sense if you try to take it as like a literal scientific thing. Like, this doesn't, and then it t- says it again, like in the next chapter, it says it differently. You're like, what is the deal with this? And so that cracked open something. That imperfection of what I wanted this story to be a modernistic scientific account that fully explained existence, it didn't work as that. It, it created some tension. It created a tension of, okay, I can either like kind of close my eyes to and just assume there are vaults and that the world is probably flat. Like the cosmology that this implies is absurd. I can either kind of just like pretend that it doesn't say that and really try to bend the words come up with all these elaborate explanations of why we can see stars that are millions or billions of light years away if the universe is only 6,000 years old. Or I could just like embrace the tension of maybe this isn't supposed to be literal. And that opened a nuance that kind of broke through some fundamentalism. All of a sudden, this text was actually kind of a doorway into, wow, what if I approach my faith and read and, and learn about metaphor and learn about hear things in a little more nuanced, deeper way than just assuming that what I first hear at first glance is what it is on the surface. So that's what I did in my teenage years, towards the end of my teenage years. And then in my 20s, as I was able to kind of let that nuance open up and start hearing other things from the text than some sort of account of cosmology or scientific account of the creation of the universe, I started being able to find other things in it, like the image of God. Let us make humankind in our image. In that image was this desire and ability to sort of be co-creators of our world, that we could imagine what kind of world we want to live in and actually work with the creator in this story to make it happen. In the story, in the Genesis story, humans are tasked with naming the animals, and it's sort of this cooperative situation, and there's this creating order. And and so for that, it kind of I, I got all these ideas that kind of inspired creatively as an artist i can it's kind of like fundamental to my nature to create and that's what it means to be human on some fundamental level and i could get that from the text and the story and and there was all this richness in that and also it sort of opened the door for a more universal way of seeing all god's children god's children weren't just the people relegated later in the story that ended up following this specific religious narrative, but all humans were created in the image of God. All of them, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of race, regardless of 
the circumstances of their birth, whether they are considered able-bodied or not, it all reflects the image of God. And then in my 30s, I have been inspired to see how we as humans create gods in our image. And we see this God at the beginning who is separating light from dark and sea from land and all these different divisions, eventually good from evil. That's what we do, right? Like we're born with no differentiated anything. We have no words, no concepts to to separate light from dark. But we come kicking and screaming into this world suffering and we try to make sense of it and we try to like make it more bearable by putting names to things, by trying to control it and fit it into something that's understandable and controllable. And we separate light from dark, day from night. And so now I see in this story this how we actually have this tendency as humans to reify our egos to the point with our stories where we project them into the sky and we create these gods and stories in our image of what we want the world to be something that we can control and we can know what's good and evil and we can name this and do this and control it and be the gods who rule the earth and subdue the earth. And that says a lot to me about human nature. So it's taught me about impulses within myself that I have found. And what I love, I guess, overall about Genesis 1 is that in its perfect imperfection, it has left cracks and room and space to be able to evolve with it and let it continue to speak. If you were to talk to your girls about the Genesis 1 story, what would you say? I would say, here's a story that humans have told for a long time. I'd just probably tell them the story, ask what they think about it, and have a conversation and see where they're at on the conveyor belt as far as, I mean, Amelie, the, my oldest, I have two, one who's four, one who's seven. The seven-year-old, I imagine with all the things that we tell her already, would already have some like thoughts about it. <laughs> You know, I think not painting it as a literal thing that happened, but as a story that people can find meaning within and as a good starting place to talk about what does it mean to be alive and what do you think it means to be alive and where do we come, what what do you think that all of this is? Uh, I think that's an interesting place to start the conversation. I'm kind of wondering how many people here went on a journey maybe through uh, understanding evolution that helped kind of deconstruct like that Genesis 1 thing. Is there? Wow. Yeah. I'd pat in my heart because they're my people. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah, it's crazy. Trees came from stars, man. Trees came from stars. (laughs) Trees are stars. (laughs) Um, it's, It's crazy how those two things have been put in odds against each other, that if you are to be a person of faith or a Christian, then you have to interpret this Genesis 1 text as literal and therefore, you know, believe in a young earth creation style, um, uh, I'm trying to be gracious, guys. I didn't want to bash Ken Ham right now, but uh, <laughs> he bashed us. I mean, it's, did he? Oh yeah. Oh. What did he say? We're of greater danger to Christianity than atheism. I think that was. The he quote. said the liturgist was. Yeah. <laughs> Best compliment we ever got. Winning. Anytime, anytime anyone on this panel gets labeled dangerous or a heretic, I'm like winning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it's it's funny how. For so many of us, that was the deconstruction pill. I just kind of wanted to point to that. 
I'm sorry, I just thought of a joke and it's late. Ham shot first. <laughs> My Star Wars nerds know what's up. Sorry. Wait, wait, no, explain yeah, this. Explain what? It. Han shot first is a is a difference in two cuttings of the Star Wars films. So that became like a major point of contention on the internet. Did or did not Han Solo shoot first in a particular bar scene? So I made a, a similar sound pun by saying Ham shot first, as in Ken Ham shot first in our internet that, controversy. That guy knew what you were talking about. That guy right there. You guys should hang out later. I'm in. That's some deep web stuff. <laughs> that 3 a.m. Google search. <laughs> like reading here on Reddit. <laughs> like That's literally true. So as a person who grew up in the Protestant church, this was something that I wouldn't expect myself to read. In Luke 1, verse 26, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your words to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So for those of you who know a little bit about my stories, I've talked about it, my struggle to understand that my body, that I could be good, is something that I've struggled with for a very long time. It was something that at one point, on several occasions, almost took my life. When I think about how I read this scripture now, I see how differently I see myself as being reflected in my interpretation But for those of you who grew up in the church where women's bodies were bad and caused men to sin, isn't it interesting to think that maybe God would come to all of us through the body of a woman? So I grew up in churches where I was told, you don't wear spaghetti straps. You certainly don't dance like we were dancing earlier because it would cause somebody else to sin. I was told that my body was a weapon, that it was dangerous, that it was something to be ashamed of, that my body brought sin into this world, that my body, that my identity as a woman actually caused sin to enter the world. And when you grow up hearing over and over and over again, he, 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 father, 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 King, King, King. And the only stories that you're told about women are primarily about how women brought sin into this world and are dangerous to men. That starts to take a toll on how you see yourself. 
I would say that that is a result of the way that we've created and constructed the narrative of God through a patriarchal lens. I don't think that women's bodies are actually bad. But as it goes with constructs, when we reinforce them and retell them over and over and over again, even though they're constructs, they feel real. No person of color is actually less, actually less valuable than another person. But when you behave in such a way that they are, the experience of oppression is real. The experience of silencing and marginalization, that experience is real, even though you're not actually any less valuable. So we get these two images of women, the Madonna and the whore. This comes up in feminist narratives and feminist deconstructions of patriarchal narratives of women. Women are perfect and the virgin, like Mary, or they're Mary Magdalene or Eve. Women's bodies are bad or they're perfect and they're virgins. So where does that leave us? if we're also told that we can never be perfect? Where does that leave us if we're told that the virgin birth was impossible and that we could never be good except if we had the dead body of a man to tell us that our sin had been washed away? So we get these two narratives, Madonna and the whore. And that's where often I see a lot of women in counseling talking about their experience of being moms and sexual, feeling like, how do I reconcile these two things? Because I was always told if I was a mom that I was like the Virgin Mary, but if I was sexual, I was like Eve. What happens when our sexuality and our goodness and being a parent and being a child and all of these different identities collide? We start to pull apart the seams of the stories that we were told. So we get Madonna and the whore. The other thing that we also get a lot of is Virginity is the only way to be a good woman. And a really interesting fact that I came across is that virgin didn't used to mean that you hadn't had sex with someone. Virgin meant a woman who belonged to herself and not to somebody else. Wow. That's a tweet. Someone pull out your phone right now and tag me in that. (laughs) So if we're told that being a virgin is the only good way to be a woman, but virginity is actually defined by sexual experience with a man, then everything about women's bodies is about men, actually. So growing up in a Protestant church, because we don't have a great doctrine of Mary or don't have a lot of fascination with her that we see in more liturgical or more Catholic communities of faith, I never really paid much attention to the Mary story. I actually thought it was kind of laughable. I I think I really didn't understand when people really had a high view of Mary what that was about. But I was always told, well, there's no way to God but Jesus. So why would you deify anyone who wasn't a member of the Trinity? But as my views on spirituality have changed and as my views on my body have changed, I've started to see this story differently. I've started to see that although women were told that they brought sin into the world, we get to claim that we also brought God into the world. 
and it was through our vulvas. So what does that mean if God took up residence in the body of a woman? What would this story sound like if I said to you there was a disabled trans person who was in a wheelchair and God showed up in their body? What would happen if I told you that the person who looked different than you said that God showed up in their body? So depending on where you are in terms of how you understand scripture and what it means to you, there's something for us to take away here, particularly in a narrative of the, our relationship with the divine that has been largely constructed through patriarchal narratives where God is intellectually related to, God is far away, God is bigger than, God is transcendent. And yet through incarnational theology, we see that God is imminent, God is now, and God is actually in the body. So when I read this story, I think, thank goodness that we get this story in Scripture, where often it's misinterpreted, Scripture is misinterpreted as being harmful to women. In some ways it is harmful to women and people who are minorities, and yet we got these other stories about actually Scripture saying lots of things about people who are minorities and on the margins actually being just like everybody else. But here we have a story of a woman's body that held God. And whether that's literal or that's a metaphor, what does that mean for you? And what if it was to say as well that the way that pain came into the world was also the way that God would come into the world? So what if this was about more than just women, but about being human? That the people that we say cause the problems are the sinners are also the people who God chooses to enter through. It's like really interesting to me for, for so much of the American church, which is based on devotion to scripture and reading the Bible a lot, how shallow and superficial an encounter with the Bible must be to yield a Madonna whore dichotomy. So that even though patriarchy is incredibly present in the biblical arc and language, as would be pretty culturally appropriate for the time it was written, and there was very imperialist notes, it's a, it's a work of its time, there are incredibly powerful, dynamic women in Scripture. There are women who literally lead the culture in times of crisis. There's one particular story I enjoy of a woman who killed an oppressive man in his sleep by driving a tent peg through her head. I think it's pronounced J.L., that doesn't fit very cleanly into a Madonna whore dichotomy. And yet so often that is the biblical, air quotes, depiction of women and femininity in our society. I don't remember. Do we get special glasses that filter out parts of the Bible when we join a church? I think I had a pair, yeah. How does that occur? I mean, it's crazy. There's a poem I wanted to read that I forgot to read. I found God in myself, and I loved her. I loves her fiercely. That's by Notsake Shange. I was going to do this, the Mary story, but I'm glad I didn't now. Because you <laughs> killed that. Just wanted to throw that out there. So do you have any place um, with Mary in your own, in your spiritual life now, Hillary? Is it? It makes me think about, just through the metaphor, that maybe I'm like Mary. 
I really don't think that much. It feels more like an experience of feeling like maybe I could be like Mary too. Maybe I am like Mary. Maybe I have God inside my body. I'm really into matryoshka dolls right now. So those Russian stacking dolls where the smallest ones are on the inside. And because I've been getting more and more into reading literature about the divine feminine and God as mother and all of these, these kind of images that I didn't really see growing up. Again, as I was mentioning before about the idea of God as male and being transcendent and God as being more feminine and being more imminent, it seems that whenever I read these stories about the divine feminine, matryoshka dolls come up. So I've started been kind of noticing them and thinking about them and maybe wanting to get a set. And then my mom was in Russia a few weeks ago and came home and without us even talking about it, presented me with this set of matryoshka dolls. And they tell a story. So there's five dolls stacked within each other. The largest one that holds all the other dolls has this basket of fruit in her hands. And when you open that up, there's another doll inside that holds an apple. And then you open up the next doll, and she's got jam. And then you open up the next doll, and she's holding seeds. And you open up the last one, and she's holding a butterfly. And the butterfly often symbolizes transformation and new life. And I remember being so struck, just immediately tears coming to my eyes when I saw this, because I saw the largest doll containing all of these other dolls, and transformation was on the inside, at the very center. And so I think about Mary And me kind of like Mary holding transformation, holding the potential for new life, holding the divine on the inside of me, but also this intergenerational piece, which reminds us that we're all connected to each other and, and that God is also the mother, in my opinion, that holds me. Mm. It's like an Escher painting. You don't know where it starts and where it ends, but like if God is in me and I am in God, just kind of go around and around and around. Am I the doll on the inside? Am I the doll holding the doll on the inside? Mm. And it feels like it doesn't really matter which one because they're all true. Mm. What if we extend that metaphor to a we um, and even Christianity itself over over the last while? And I still would check the complicated relationship status box with Christianity on my profile. But I, I, I see within Christianity, not just now, but historically, people who have questioned some of these fundamental, like it's in the creeds that Mary was a virgin. There's some damage, I think, in that way I see things. If when, when, especially when we interpret virgin as means you've never had sex, and that's what pure means. That's where God can come if you, have, if you haven't had sex. Um, and so there's fundamentally, all the patriarchy of that, and then in the structure of the church, there's fundamentally, for most of the church, for most of time, you can't, be a priest unless you're a man and you can't there's so much it's so like in the bricks um patriarchy is and honestly that's a big part of why i have i don't we don't go to church and i have these girls that you mentioned before and while i love so much of christianity's there's so much even you talking about the virgin birth and, and what you can get out of that i see that 
historically, it's not just people today doing it. There always have been people reimagining, reinventing, and they're holding this potential of what this could be. And you got all this other junk that you have to like, yeah, I know this is where we've come, but we're going to retell the story and reimagine what it can be. And I'm curious of those of you that would still consider yourself within the tradition, within the faith, just how, how you navigate that tension of seeing the patriarchy in the bricks, in the, in the very substance of so much of the structure, but still being able to reimagine and, and see enough beauty within it to keep going and keep telling the story with new, imaginative, innovative ways. Can I add to that and just say, I've really, in my own personal life, like wrestled with the virgin birth in that understanding of it being this, you know, someone who's never had sex, therefore God could come. I always kind of thought the story would have been better if Mary had a child out of wedlock. It's just in my own person, I'm surprised I'm confessing this right now, but like in my own personal, like revisioning of that story, I always thought not that it's dirty, but like how much more powerful it would be if that even in the taboo in the stigma of you're an unwed woman who, you know, has had premarital sex, that God would still be redemption in that or, or manifest himself, herself through in and through that. I've always thought that was a more better telling of that. But I mean, so what do you picture kind of adding to Michael? Like now, do do you think that it needs to be literal to, in order to have faith and believe whatever that means? I heard Pete Rollins talk about a joke, a Jewish joke where two Hebrew scholars are arguing about the interpretation of scripture They're arguing and arguing, and they keep praying, God, show me, show me the interpretation. Show me what's true. And finally, God is like, okay, I'll I'll come down, and I'll tell you what's the true interpretation. God shows up and says that, and the Hebrew scholars are like, what do you, don't know. We don't want to actually know. We love arguing about it. We like asking the questions, and we don't want to stop asking the questions. It's not about arriving at something. And then that being the way that it is, it's a starting point to have conversation. So I actually feel more life in that passage because of the questions that you're asking and the potential for us to challenge the narrative from different perspectives than I do feeling like it matters one way or the other. Like, let's talk about what happens if it's not literal? What happens if it is literal? How does that change things? And let's have the same conversation next week. I'm not interested in deciding I'm interested in asking questions and considering how it might subvert what I already thought I knew. That was, yeah, that was really beautiful. Give it up for Hillary. Seriously. That was gorgeous. Yeah. I'm getting lots of exposure to the thing that I fear most, which is being seen (laughs) and known. Okay, so my story, do you guys remember Elijah in the Bible? Yeah. Yeah, the, the prophet, right? You got to say it like that, the prophet, the miracle worker, right? And all these like tales and stories and, you know, there were oil running out of pots and, you know, he was healing people and he had this like magical mantle <laughs> that he was, you know, given to his, you know, the next generation. But I wanted to tell the story about uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel. Um, so in the context, I guess it's ninth century BC, they say, uh, there was this king named Ahab and Ahab married a woman named Jezebel who here has ever been called Jezebel in church. Raise your hand. 
So this is not about you. I just want no tr- just trigger warning. This is not about you. When Do you, you have hear a Jezebel this- spirit? Were you told you had a Jezebel spirit? That's what the music minister said when I was a senior in high school. <laughs> True story. How progressive of him to call a man Jezebel, too. For, for conservative Christians, that's progressive. <laughs> you know, the Jezebel spirit isn't just for women. There's men that have it, too. Show. Snap, snap, snap. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, that's... I've never thought of that before. That's yeah, glorious. Like, like, they were really progressive for spiritual warfare people, right? Like, that was... <laughs> wow. <laughs> Man. So, there was a, a king named Ahab who married a, a woman named Jezebel. Here's the thing, though. Jezebel, the scripture, the, the King James Version, the New King James Version I had, they, they called her cosmopolitan, meaning she worshipped many gods. So, supposedly, she, you know, worshipped the god of Baal. And she was bringing this influence into Israel. Now, far as I can understand, which basically is what Wikipedia told me. Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about. It's just as good as Encyclopedia Britannica was. It's just as good, y'all. It's gotten there. That's right. I remember looking up menstruation in there. Do you remember what it said? No, but somebody had said something about that. And I was like, and then I was like, I have no idea what that is. (laughs) Up to the Britannica. When no one's around, young Michael's going to the Britannica. (laughs) What is menstruation? (laughs) Okay, so, right, she worshipped this this god named Baal. Um, You know, the origins of Baal are not fully known, which basically means I refuse to dig deep enough to figure that out. Right? That's where I says, you know, they're not fully known, but, you know, know, because it's just a podcast. Um, (laughs) Sorry, we're not an authority if you thought we were. We're we're not. Um, But one thing is clear that Wikipedia says is that at first the name Baal was used by the Jews for their God without discrimination. But as the struggle between the two religions developed, the name Baal was given up by the Israelites as a thing of shame. And they actually changed, you know, a certain name that was called for God, uh, you know, Jerubabel, and they changed it to uh, Jeroboam, which means shame. So what was the evil of Baal? Why was Jezebel and all of this, you know, why were they so bad? This guy that Wikipedia told me about named Brady Kelly said, basically, I guess they were into occultic sexual practices, which for the ancient world could really destabilize a whole community, right? Especially, you know, and Science Mike has talked about this many times about hunter-gatherer societies and, you know, anyway, and what marriage represents to that. So here's the story. This is the context. So Elijah, with all this corruption going on, Elijah the prophet goes to see Ahab. The Lord calls to him and says, go see the king. So he goes to see the king. And this is what he says. So Obadiah, who was the palace facilitator, uh, went to meet Ahab and told him to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, Ahab said, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal. That's a lot of prophets. And the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Not you, Mike. Uh, It's like this story. So Ahab sent word through all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. Then Elijah said, I am the one and the only of the Lord's prophets left. 
But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of my God, the Lord, the God who answers by fire, for he is God. Then all the people said, what say is good? They're like, we good. Okay, well, let's do that. What you say is good. Okay, all right. Anyone right now want to get an audio version of the Bible read by William? (laughs) Thank you for giving me my next project. (laughs) I've never thought about that. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping or must be awakened. I mean, this is shade right here, y'all. Like, he was like, oh, where he at? Oh, he ain't here? Oh, I thought you said he was going to be here, though. Really? Really, though? Really? Ha, ha. Ha, 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 ha. That was some pettiness right there so they shouted louder (laughs) and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom I guess because they were into the you know the blood sacrifice and the sex cults midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice but there was no response then Elijah said to all the people come here to me they came and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down Elijah took 12 stones each one represented the tribes descended from Jacob to whom the Lord had come, saying, You shall be Israel. With those stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around the large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut up, he, he basically did it. And then he said, Do it a third time. And he did. And at the time of sacrifice, the Elijah prophets stepped forward and prayed, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You know, you and your mama used to pray, she used to call on like all the ancestors. Lord, the faith of my father and my father's father. No one's? Okay, that was my mom. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me. And so these people will know that you are Lord. Basically, the fire came. And then once the fire came, like, Elijah went and, like, slaughtered everybody. Like, the 450 prophets of Baal. Gruesome story. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Okay, so I'll just say this real quick and be done. Because that story is just, it's crazy. So he do it by himself? Just him? He just yeah, it went. says Elijah yeah. slaughtered them. Yeah, yeah, by himself. Yeah. Four, that's, that is badass, y'all. 450 people just, <laughs> like they stood in line. They didn't fight back. Like, what was, what was going on? I need to know the practical dimensions of how they were slaughtered. Um, yeah, it's like Matrix. He's like flying to the air, slow motion. Like, Neo, well, he was a prophet and a miracle worker, so. Um, (laughs) yeah so this story registers to me because have you ever felt like you were like the only one Elijah was like I am the only prophet of the Lord left right you've been in this situation where there's some corrupt things going on or there's some people doing some shady stuff and you were like you see it and you're like I'm the only one that knows and and I've got to call it out have you ever felt that zeal don't leave me hanging y'all please nod or say yes okay right? You felt like Elijah. And I th- that's why I love this story, right? Because I get like that. So I'm like, you know, especially if you are an intuitive person or, you know, for those of you that are really deep in spiritual, you, we would say you're prophetic, you know, you know, like you feel things from God or from other people. And so you're like, this is right. And that's wrong. And you feel it so strong. And then you, you, you challenge the powers, right? So imagine this, here comes Elijah. He was a prophet during the reign of King Ahab. 
It's always crazy that God raises up prophets, especially when they're most needed. And usually in the Bible, it's when men set themselves up as kings over other men. Prophets, according to Walter Brueggemann, represents the alternative consciousness. They provide us with the voice of God, which is always the counterscript to the false narratives of empire. Right? Sound familiar? There's always a fight for the truest name of God, especially as other names become known and associated with evil. Right? So here's Ahab, and they're mixing kind of this other thing with the name of God, right? And, and that's where the tension lies. So what happens when a word or a metaphor or a perfectly good name becomes convoluted? When a meaning or a metaphor becomes twisted to promote evil instead of good? Again, sound familiar? What happens when the truth fails in the public square? And the ones in power are corrupt. Do we call it fake news and continue on our steady diet of entertainment and apathy? Like literally, what do we do? It is in these conditions that God raises up prophets. Those who cannot take the gnawing insanity of cognitive dissonance. The ever so slight buzzing sound that you can't quite place, mainly because it's buzzing all around you. But the thing about Elijah that I love is that truth eventually has a showdown. And Elijah's brave act ended up bringing about the restoration of a whole nation. And my other favorite thing about this story is after it all happens, and after he does the brave thing, he runs away like a little child. (laughs) Jezebel's like, oh, I'm going to get you. You did what? You killed all my prophets? And then he runs into the wilderness, and then he runs into a cave, and he he basically goes into deep depression and suicide. Have you been in a situation where you spoke truth to power, you said the thing that needed to be said, not out of a place of rebellion, but out of a place of love, and then you ended up being the one that ran away and got afraid? Like, that resonates, right? But what are we called to do? We're constantly called to speak truth in that square. We're constantly called to call down fire and to tell the truth at any cost. Because it's the truth, regardless of the popular opinion. Even when you know Jezebel's going to come get you. You tell the truth. And you speak truth to power. And that's what I love about that story. Mm. Yeah. You know, you said in that kind of run, so what do we do? And a, a little report came out recently that white Protestants have the lowest support for accepting refugees into the country of any social group in the United States. And the prophet of Austin, Jen Hatmaker, said in response, (laughs) and I'm pretty close to quote, time to burn it all down. I'm trying to get on the organ. Still a little bass run it's, starts it's to not actually dip. the right kind of organ. There would have been a. <laughs> <laughs> Old pipe organ, not gospel organ. Okay. Yeah. White right. church yeah. organ. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> no, but right. So true. Where? What do we do about truth in the public square? Do you guys feel like you're sort of going insane, like quietly? Like, am I crazy for saying that? Like, you see the shit going on, and you hear it, and you hear the lies, you hear the deceit, right? And there's always lies and deceit. No one's saying this is new, but it's ramped up to a whole nother level, and you're called to, like, they want us to normalize it and say, it's okay, and you know, God's in this, and we just got to be quiet, and I'm going, who does that work for? That only works for the status quo. Yeah, it only works for, for Jezebel and Ahab. Yeah. That's who it works for. And all the prophets of Baal who stand and posture themselves with lies. It says they're frantic prophesying. And they're lies. 
And there's people that are set up in institutions that do this stuff constantly that basically create fear around refugees and immigrants and the people that the church is called to love. These false prophets, though I think they're well-meaning people oftentimes, are buying into the Ahab Jezebel bullshit. Mm. So what do we do? What do we do? Because the dissonance is getting louder and we're all going a bit crazy. We all are. Can we, we can own that. I don't have the answers, but I'm saying it's getting louder, y'all. And we've got to start coming up with some real solutions real quick. I was waiting for you to jump up, head down there and just start preaching right there. Just testify. Like just let's get it done. That's my, that's my granddaddy and my daddy. I don't do it like that, y'all, but. <laughs> you are getting there. I am. <laughs> I'm going to be that old, like, crockety guy. Like, and the Lord says, like, that is going to be me. I'm, I guarantee it. So I'm headed there. So just pray my strength in the Lord, y'all. I just feel like I, w- I want to actually make space around us thinking about that. Like, I, I'm just feeling the weight and the conviction around that. I think it starts with telling the truth. James Baldwin said, not everything can be changed, but if we do want to change things, we have to face them. To paraphrase, like, we have to face it. We can't lie about it or demean it or say it's not what it actually is. Like, it's not to demean people, but you have to call racism, racism. You have to, and it's funny, I feel very biblical about that. You have to call sin, sin. Yes. You know? Knowing that the sinner can be redeemed, right? (laughs) Like... No, they're not going to hell, but like, we have to call it what it is. We have to call corruption, corruption. We have to call pay for play, pay for play. Like, you know, if we don't call it that, then what is democracy? Like, what is representation of the people other than some type of kleptocracy? And I don't want to live in that. Like, not to get super political, but you know, but like, I don't want to live in a nation that's dictated by corporations and wealthy people and particularly white, wealthy Christians. Like, right. Come on. So we got to put our little petty side bullshit together and like figure out some type of mobilization to, to be the change that we want to see and to change our cities on a local level and on a state level and on a national level. Like we've got to call the thing a thing. I don't know. For some of you that feel like you're going crazy, I just want to give you strength tonight and say you can call a thing a thing and you can keep calling it. And you've probably been Elijah and maybe some of you are Elijah right now and you feel weary and you feel like you're in the cave. You had to run away a bit to get yourself together, to, to do some self-care and to heal. But ultimately, right, the Lord comes and visits Elijah. He comes and, vis- and says, what are you doing? Where are you? Like, where are we in the fight? We got to give our lives for something. Otherwise, it's just for comfortability. Like, I don't, I'll die for this. You know, I won't take a life for it, but I will lay down my life for this. Will we do that for each other? We need to keep speaking truth. We have to keep being consistent and faithful in love to speak truth to power and to each other and to our family members and to our communities. Like, and why don't we? Fear. Yeah. Here, we're going to get you a mic. We want you to say that. No, the institutions that we have know how to deal with us. They take us out one by one. It's not us standing up alone. We die if we do. We die if we do. If the church will be the institution it's supposed to be and stand up against these other institutions and say, no more. Yes. 
I'm thankful. <laughs> My science mic just did a run. Hey. I'm thankful for the parts of the church that have stood up and have resisted and said no. But we need more, like you're saying. We need more people. Like somebody told me, a friend of ours, Kurt Kroon in Portland, he said, the church is the only institution in the world, really in America particularly, but the world that is built to repent. He goes, government's not going to repent. Like industry's not going to repent. Facebook's not going to repent for their sins. (laughs) Like really, like they're not. They'll do a nice cute commercial, right? To make you feel good about still using their platform. You know, so, but the, the church is the only institution, and we're the church. I'm not just talking about Jerry Falwell and all those, God bless them, stuffy people. Like, you know, like, I, I'm talking about, like, us, the people, like, the church, God's people. Like Michael was saying earlier about the, the love and the inclusion of all people. Like, we are God's children collectively, not just the people who ascribe to a certain belief system of Christian orthodoxy. Like, we've got to stand up, and we've got to name it, and we've got to say it, and then we've got to call those institutions like Fox News and say, no, no, stop with the anti-blackness. No, Stop. She says, because we tell Christians they have to be nice. I'm tired of nice. Nice got me nowhere. Nice got me very apathetic and internal and stuffing my feelings in order to belong. I'm, I'm of the school of thought. I'm like, let the rage scream through you. Like, because the insanity is real. And you're not wrong for feeling that. Because that's what's being marketed to you. And that's what's being, anyway, I'm, I'm done too. Mm. I'm not suppressing myself, but I'm just saying I'm done. We didn't plan this, William and I. Whoa, what did you do? This is just serendipity. Uh, Matthew 8, 5 through 13. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes, and to a policeman, don't shoot, and he does not. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed. At that moment, and for most of my life, as a good white evangelical, I understood that we, this persecuted minority, represented a modern-day Israel, direct spiritual descendants from first-century Jews, And that it was our job to stand up to the liberal secular media of Rome and stand up for truth and for love and for justice 
meaning spiritual warfare justice, and not things that inconvenience the suburbanites in any possible way. And that's my spiritual heritage. A Roman who believed with sincerity that he was a Jew. But here's a funny thing. Jesus was a marginalized man of color living under the thumb of empire. And when he stood up and spoke truth, he was publicly executed as a warning of the consequences of speaking truth to power. There was nothing exceptional about messianic cult leaders in the first century. They were a dime a dozen. There were lots of messiahs in the time of Christ, and there were lots of crucifixions. But I've learned, and as I've told many of you before on the internet, that I am not a Jew. I'm a Roman. Because when I say to my servant, go do this, they do. When I say to my congressman, you better listen, he does. So what does that mean? It means, you asked earlier, what do we do with a religion that's so tied up with patriarchy and colonization and heterosexism and sexism and anti-feminism and anti-blackness? How do we redeem that? Matthew 8 holds the key centurion, call the marginalized Lord, because they are the descendants of the role of Israel in society. They have the embodied spiritual experience to understand that the gospel is not a get-out-of-hell-free card, and the gospel is not a license to claim the world for yourself, that the gospel is a, a demand to lay down what you have for the healing of the world, and anything less is not good news. So there's this crazy asshole named Saul, and he kills Christians. And he was a Jew, but he was like a a different kind of Jew. He was a privileged Jew. He was a ruling elite in his society. And he was also a citizen of Rome. And Paul went from killing Christians to being one of them because he saw a bright light and heard a voice. It's a cool story, bro. And... And then Paul publicly works out like his pharmaceutical Greco-Roman Hellenized worldview through a mystical experience in a very public and messy way. Paul began to act with decisiveness and authority far before he had things figured out. But what happened when Paul would go into a town and say things that weren't popular to be said to power, he was not crucified because he was a citizen of Rome. He was warned. He was arrested. He was imprisoned. He was exiled. You know why? Because even though Paul said some really terrible things about women, he would not give up on the idea that God was made flesh for everyone. And that the only way to embody that was to take up your cross too, to voluntarily lay things down. And I say that because the Liturgist Podcast has literally millions of listeners, and a very large percentage of them are white people going, I think I care about this stuff. 
But what do I do? You take up your cross. You don't stop talking. And you get warned. And you get arrested. And you get exiled. But you never give up on the idea that God's justice is for everyone. Because, and this is truly disgusting and ironic, but without Paul, the good news of Christ would have never conquered an empire. So we're, we are an interesting place, my white friends, of having to be followers, and I believe it is essential in justice movements that white people are followers in racial justice, that straight people are followers in issues of LGBTQI justice. I think it's important that when marginalized people describe their experiences, the most important thing in the room is not how we privileged folks feel about it. That when disabled people describe their experiences, that their voices are most important. But our role is to be the ones who can say to our servants, go, and they will go. And our congressmen vote, and they will vote. And our police departments, we will not tolerate state-sanctioned murder of black people. Tonight's a good night to look up who your congressperson is, if you don't already know. Yeah, I've taken several trips to D.C., and they get those voicemails. They get those faxes. (laughs) And when issues pop up, and it's about all sorts of things, and their offices get flooded, it shuts down their offices. If they start getting a bunch of emails, a bunch of like incessant phone calls, and a bunch of faxes, that's how they know what their constituents want to, like them to represent. It's an amazing thing that we get to be a part of something that we have a voice. In the ancient world, they didn't have a voice. We get a voice. We can actually bring change in a relatively short amount of time by doing those simple things that Hillary's talking about, finding out who your representatives are, who your senators are, and then actually look at the issues, actually look at what ICE is doing, <laughs> look at the families that are being ripped apart, like actually get on the ground and see what is happening to our country right now and the spiritual harm that is happening to actual people. It's real. This is Texas, y'all. We got to get Ted Cruz out of here. Like... You know, but like, I'm sorry, like, like, we've got to do something about mass shootings in this country. Like, that's just, we've got to start talking about it and we've got to start finding solutions and dialoguing and, and holding politicians accountable. The reason why they get away with this stuff is because we don't hold them accountable. We don't. We don't care. Like, I've got my Netflix queue with all my shows that I love. And my Spotify playlist that I love to just, you know, like, I know more about that stuff oftentimes than I do about things happening in my own community, right? Like, something is twisted and sick in our culture. We've got to put the focus back on, like Mike was saying, the people who we see Christ through, like the crucified class of society. Like, we have to see them again and and not dismiss them anymore. And Because how can we say we even would even be on a path of spiritual enlightenment if we can't even see the people in front of us? As a person of color, there's an exhaustion that makes you just want to hunker down and survive. 
the next few years and possibly four years after that. And then figuring out like how you handle the fact that America's Pandora's box has sort of been open and you can't close it anymore. But there's still a desire and an obligation to fight alongside people and push for what we believe is true. It just there's there's more days than not where the only energy I think I have is just to worry about my husband, worry about my kids, go to bed, wake up, do the same thing over again. And that isn't a practical way to live. And it's not, it just, it, it just seems lacking. So any advice there I think would be helpful. I, I definitely come from a privileged place of being a single guy. So I don't have a, a spouse or kids, you know, to na- help navigate those things because that takes so much of the uh, attention span. So I actually think about that oftentimes, how I know where that comes from. I mean, I feel, so firstly, I do feel the exhaustion that you're talking about. Like we all do. I, I hope, I want you to feel that. I don't want you to not feel that. Like I've, I used to feel like I had to put on a front for the people, you know, for the people and be this and let them know you're okay and you're doing better. And it's like, no, I'm angry. I'm really angry and I'm exhausted and I'm tired of fighting. I want to live in adjustable peace peaceful society. And I think we can do that. So I don't, I don't know, like I, I have so much compassion for, for families and mothers and, and people that just are in the day-to-day grind of work and paycheck to paycheck. Like I, I have, I understand why we're often so sluggish to wake up because it's the grind of empire. And that's why I think we've got to start caring and doing the theological work of deconstructing who we are, our identities, and that placement inside of empire. Because here's the thing, empire wants you to be apathetic. Empire wants you to be sluggish. They want you to be weighed down so you can't think about the political system and, and your community and how to create you know, better schools for your children and, and better neighborhoods you know, that include all people. Like They don't want you to think about that. They want you to live paycheck to paycheck. And I'm not saying that as some like, conspiracy theory, like they, the man, the what, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, but I'm saying like from a theological framework, right? Like that's, that is the the beast system. It's, it's, that's the mark of the beast. It's the economic system that keeps you enslaved and in bondage to where you can't be free to worship and free to see the beauty of God in all things and all people. So they keep you down, they give you a number, they get your nine to five, you go to work, you type, the, you know, you get the kids, you get to the house and then you, you struggle and then you wake up. What happened? I don't know. Like I, it's, I'm 70 now. And especially for people of color, that hits us harder, hits us so much harder. And our communities have been literally disseminated by those things and then throw on like mental health and, and drug epidemics. And we've been, we're done. And we're looking at a situation where in the next several decades that the medium wealth for black families is going to be zero. How do we, what? That's not individual responsibility. That's not people not wanting to work or have dignity for themselves. That's the empire telling you, you don't, you don't matter. So let's take your wealth and let's give it to the top 1%. So like, so for me, I don't know how to answer your question, but I know that we've got to get awake. <laughs> I'm old school, right? We used to go and you used to pray, you used to fast, turn off the TV, you know, right? Like you, like, and you get educated. Like that's what my family did. We didn't have like, like my grandma was like, that's what we did. Like you prayed and you fasted and you got together with the community and you figured it out and you figured out how to, how to make that difference. And if you have to say no to worldly pleasures, whatever that is. And I, I know about those worldly pleasures. Uh, <laughs> you know, you do that because that's what matters. Because I want to leave a world where your children and my, you know, nieces and nephews can, can actually have something to build on. Mm. When you were talking, I was thinking about this thing that happens in choirs. When enough people sing together and someone takes a breath, you don't hear them take a breath because everybody else carries the tune. 
So when we think about power with instead of power over, and we see that we are not alone in something, and we intentionally find communities and groups of people who remind us that we are not alone, they can carry the tune when we catch our breath. We're not meant to face the empire alone. We're not made to fi- meant to face even our pain from that alone. And so community, I think, is is what needs to happen in the church, but also for survival. Second thing is that a lot of times when we're tired, we do things that help us not feel. So we scroll on our phones. We watch a show that doesn't make us think. We eat until we can't think straight. Right? We do things. We use substances, behaviors to numb ourselves out. But those are not restorative to us. They just stop us from feeling, feeling tired for a little bit. So whenever I talk with people about the fight or whatever they need to face, how do they sustain the intensity of their toddler's tantrum? When you have a break, you do something restorative. You intentionally go find the things that fill you up and you make space for them. And the problem with that is that it takes a little bit of energy to do that, to roll out the yoga mat, to buy the book of poetry, to listen to the Cosmos album. But in the end, it's the only thing that's restorative. So we have to find the things that are restorative, and we have to choose them. And if it takes just a little bit of energy to choose that, we may fear that we will be more tired, but in the end, we will be restored. Let's feel what just happened and let it take root. If you want, you can close your eyes. If you want, you can let your gaze soften onto the floor. I'm going to ask you, if you're able to, to put your feet both flat on the floor. And normally we want to go right to our breath, but sometimes when we're anxious, sometimes when we feel overwhelmed, our breath is hard to catch, and then we feel more anxious. I want you to go into your feet. If you're very still, very quiet on the inside, you might feel some sensation right where your feet touch the ground. And I want you to imagine for a second that that's something from the earth body coming up into your feet. That maybe there are stories that have come before you that can energize you in this moment. And the vibration that you feel in your feet is the reminder that you are not the first and you will not be the last. And there's a whole of human history that you can draw upon. And everybody is touching the same earth. Let the same buzzing in your feet is the same buzzing in the feet of the person next to you. And you can draw on something to imagine roots that go deep. And as we know with roots, they bring things up into the trunk of the tree to spring forth life from the top. So if you feel tired, imagine drawing resources up from the roots. 
if you are in the place in your story where you have the energy that you need, you let that life spring forth up the top. And you can be both rooted and expansive at the same time. So now attend to your breath. And if you need to tuck some things away from what we talked about tonight because you don't know what to do with them yet, imagine that you can take them and put them in your pocket or bookmark them in your mind to come back to another time. And if you're ready to do something, hold on to that energy and save it so that when you get home tonight, you can talk to someone that you need to talk to, you can email someone that needs an email, you can read an article that needs to be read, you can find the thing that restores you so that tomorrow when you're tired, it's not so hard to find that. And if at all during the gathering you feel tired, put your feet on the floor. Feel your feet buzz as they sense the energy from the earth body. And draw that up, knowing that you don't have to do it alone. When you're ready, you can come back to the room. In the quiet, I had a, another one of these verses from the scriptures come to mind. And we live in such urgent and tense times. We see such darkness in places of authority, in, in the systems, the powers that oppress, control, value some lives more than others. It calls to my mind those tensions that the Bible was written out of, and it was written out of tense times as well. There was oppression and violence and slavery, and it was tense. There was tremendous work that needed to be done, and this verse just came to my mind out of uh, old Paul, Paul Pants. You, <laughs> Hashtag, clearly. <laughs> but he says, your enemy isn't flesh and blood at all. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And, you know, you can take that literally and go Harry Potter world with it, or you can see that behind the literal people that are in power, there are forces, there are mimetic trends in human psychology and in cultural consciousness that have evolved. And there's big things going on. And it's always been the temptation for human beings that see the injustice, that see the oppression, the work that needs to be done to personify it in that guy and in my family who I'm going to be meeting with this on Memorial Day and 
And it, it so easily crosses into actually being about flesh and blood. And when, the, when it becomes about flesh and blood, it never actually solves anything. So that just came up in me that in times like this, when the fervor and the passion for justice and for things to be right uh, come up, humans generally in history make that about flesh and blood. And blood is the first answer that we have. From either side, we nail people to crosses or we use crosses to hold up in our crusades. And I don't think that's the answer. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Liturgist Podcast. If you're not in the room and would like to engage with us more deeply, you can do so by going to theliturgist.com slash podcast, facebook.com slash theliturgist, or at theliturgist on Twitter and Instagram. This episode was scored by Matt Asowski with some extra tracks by Tom Crouch. Your hosts have been Mike McCarg, Michael Gunger, Hillary McBride, and William Matthews. Thanks for listening, everybody. 